0: I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Art Attack. I am your host, Bula, and this is Lizzie Dastin next to me, art historian, smarty pants, and (laughs) know-it-all.
1: Totally obnoxious know-it-all. That's me. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so Lizzie came up with a genius concept as she usually does because there the concepts are endless. That's what I love about this show. Like art is so deep and profound. It's just endless. I never, but but when it comes time to pick a subject, I have set, I get I I just get a brain freeze and I lock up and I'm like, oh sh- shoot, I don't know what we should talk about. But Lizzie always comes up with amazing topics. And so this week. Tell us what you... <laughs> Decided. Oh
1: my God, I'm really excited. Well, this one was actually encouraged by your mother because we were talking about topics and she said that she really liked the one on portraiture because she knows the Mona Lisa. Right. And so we were thinking, maybe let's not do something that's esoteric, although there's always space for that, but let's do something that more people can relate to. So we were thinking about Renaissance masters and would we do Michelangelo or Da Vinci? And I said, why don't we just do the whole Ninja Turtles? Yeah. So guys. Huh. It's turtle time
0: <laughs> Name them
1: <laughs> Oh, no problem There's Donatello Boom Michelangelo Leonardo Boom And the worst one, Raphael
0: The worst one?
1: Well, I think that Raphael to the Renaissance masters is like Renoir to the Impressionist. Just not my fave.
0: Oh, and uh, you're saying subjectively.
1: Yeah. Do you think I watched cartoons when I was little? I was watching Shakespeare, which oh. is actually a true story and kind of embarrassing. Let's cut that. you mean you were that. watching Shakespeare? <laughs> Reading Shakespeare? No, no. There were these filmed versions of various Shakespeare plays, and A Midsummer okay. Night's Dream was my favorite. So I watched that kind of on repeat.
0: I read all... I was obsessed with Shakespeare. I used to be... I was half hip-hop. <laughs> And half Shakespeare, I would go in my school at LaGuardia Performing Arts in New York and I would go up and down the escalators quoting, you know, Shakespeare, out, out, damn spot. Will all Ugh. Neptune's oceans wash away these bloody hands, et cetera. It's like oh, nonstop, like always quoting Shakespeare because uh, he was a painter with words.
1: Mm, and That's he also why. created words, invented them. He did. Often like you do.
0: Yeah, I am right now. (laughs) (laughs) Calapachidio. You know what I'm
1: saying? My favorite word that he made up is performance. Isn't that so fun? Yeah, I didn't. Really? Yeah, he did. I guess it's got to start somewhere. Exactly. Like you think like words just
0: started with like the ether, right? And God gave you words. And then all of a sudden people were like, started speaking. And all of a sudden Adam was in... Articulate dialectician, and knew exactly what he was talking about in multiple languages. But that's not what happened. People started creating <laughs> words from ooh and ah, and, rah, and next thing you know, performance. Cut to now, <laughs> and you know, you have people truncating words and changing words. So, anyway, which Ninja Turtle? Well, let's start
1: with Michelangelo. Actually, I just wanted to give a little factoid about the Ninja Turtles because okay. <laughs> it's really <laughs> By the, the, way, the only never, thing I know. <laughs>
0: never did I grow up with the Ninja Turtles. Were they omnipresent in the toy world and around me? Yes, they were huge, but I. 100% never got into any aspect of the Ninja Turtles. Zero.
1: Yeah, me me neither. The only thing I really liked about the Ninja Turtles is that they had the names of Renaissance masters. So.
0: <laughs> no, it's clever. And it's a giant, giant franchise, and they just released a new movie recently. I mean, they just not, yeah, two years ago? Okay, well, they're always releasing stuff, and it seems to be an eternal franchise.
1: Yeah, and kind of clever, because when we think of ninjas, we think of... um of athletes, warriors coming out of Japan and the creators decided to give these Ninja Turtles very, very Italian names. So I Mm. think that's kind of funny. And they were both art historians and initially they wanted to name the character that's now Donatello, Bernini based on the Bernini's, architect and yeah. the sculptor. I know, Bernini's phenomenal.
0: Phenomenal.
1: But Ooh. they liked the continuity of the Donatello, Michelangelo, and Leonardo, so that's why... When... Leonardo,
0: Raffaello. <laughs> Raffaello, no,
1: exactly. So let's start with Raffaello. Oh, God, okay.
0: <laughs> Raphael, your favorite.
1: Yeah, so I just think that of the four he just innovated the least and he did a lot of Madonna and child representations as everybody kind of did in the high Renaissance. Although Donatello was an earlier artist, but Raphael Da Vinci and Michelangelo, they all are basically the three pillars of the high Renaissance. And Raphael was just less innovative. He didn't really do anything disruptive. He didn't experiment with his materials like da Vinci did. But the one painting that he did that I think is really interesting Mm. for being so problematic is called La Fornerina. And this one is supposedly his mistress. It's a woman three-quarter length portrait as da Vinci established with his Mona Lisa. And this woman is nude, but... There is a little bit of a gossamer covering her body, but it's that wet drapery effect. And so it appears to be clothing, but really it's just clinging to her body and it's not concealing anything. It's just emphasizing it, if anything. And she has a textile that's wrapped around her head and she has some kind of armband. And both of these objects are presumably items of trade. And so they look like they're either Islamic textiles or Islamic pieces of jewelry. And I think the reason why Raphael included them in the painting is to exoticize her. And that's what I think is so problematic because it's deforming ethnocentrism. It's using its linkage to Islam, to a non, non-Italian non culture, to make the woman seem more sexual.
0: Yeah, you know, my... Uh you always hear that there was a rivalry with Raphael and Michelangelo and Leonardo and Michelangelo everybody was like you know king of the hill who's who's the king and when i look at Raphael's work it's it's uh, it's easy to look at it's easy on the eyes uh, compositions are are very beautiful but from my understanding he he you know he first of all he died very young he died at 37 and but, and he wasn't oh Technically. Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, Raphael Urbino was his name. So it's a U. No, but it ended in O. Oh, yeah.
1: Like yeah, Michelangelo, that's true. Leonardo, Urbino. Donatello, ah, I love it. Urbino.
0: <laughs> but I mean that's funny. Like I, I guess we don't know him as Urbino. But he, he died very young and, and he he ran a very uh, he he ran a very big studio. You know, from my understanding, he he was a lot of the work that was executed was not his work, but work that was done in his studio by his disciples and by the people that he trained. So he was incredibly productive. Uh, you, you have to. Yeah, exactly. The The Raphael School of Athens is there. It is. It's his it's his studio and his, you know, look, he's not my favorite. I look at his work and it's not as impressive as a Leonardo. Or a Michelangelo and Donatello, who's actually one of my top three sculptors, or four sculptors of all time. Uh, But I, I, I love his work because it's clean. It's very weird to say, but it's easy on the eyes. He's not convoluted. He tells a story. His compositions are really beautiful. And they're beautiful because they're very simple.
1: And they're very stable. And this is a tenet of high Renaissance, is that a lot of the compositions have these really stabilizing pyramids and use of geometry in order to quiet down the eye. And you mentioned the School of Athens, mm-hmm. which I wanted to circle back to, because that, I think, is Raphael Orbino's most impressive work. And it's yeah. actually one of a series of four frescoes. Mm-hmm. And a fresco, you can talk more about the process if you want to, but basically it's pigment that's mixed with some kind of wet binding that's applied directly on the wall. And it's kind of like a mural, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you just forego the canvas and you work directly on the wall. And this one was commissioned for the Pope and is in the, not the Sistine Chapel, but the it's- The Vatican? In, yeah, yeah, the Vatican. I'm yeah. like, there's a word. Yeah. So this is one of four mm-hmm. and they all represent a theme that Raphael felt epitomized the Renaissance. So we have theology, philosophy, law, and poetry. And School of Athens is philosophy. And there are two central figures. There's Plato on the left, the old dude. He's pointing up because all of his philosophies reference the universe, the cosmos. Mm -hmm. And then there's Aristotle, who's a younger man to his right. And he's pointing downward because he believed that the source of all philosophical curiosity comes from the earth. Then we have this recumbent dude, and he's sitting on the steps below, and that's Socrates, and he is shown with a chalice, and that references the hemlock that he drank when he died by suicide. And then we have a portrait of Michelangelo, and all of the people in this fresco are recognizable or would have been recognizable portraits at the time. And it's just about this celebration of the Greeks and a philosophical thought and inquiry, and is a pretty stunning masterpiece. And I love that he decides to include his rival, Michelangelo.
0: Yeah, you look at his work now, and it's funny because it it feels super cartoony. You know, like, that's the thing about the Renaissance is like, with Michelangelo, you had and not normal drafts person. He was not normal. It was like kind of godlike level, like his drawing level was so high. Raphael was more normal. You know, you could feel his his abilities were excellent, but they weren't phenomenal. Like his characters really look like cartoony in a way. You know, he's got the gestural qualities, All you have a lot of contraposto, you know, good good form. But the lighting is nothing like, you know, back then in the Renaissance, they weren't dealing with Sargent or Rembrandt lighting. It was not like a, the tremendous understanding of how light is really working. It was just more rendered. Yeah, Da Vinci too. But still, during this era, it was different. We didn't have certain things that were happening later. So if you look at it now, you're kind of like, it feels stiff. Even though the figures are gestural, there's a stiff, cartoony quality to it.
1: Interesting that you use the word stiff because I believe in this particular fresco, he's quoting friezes from antiquity. And a frieze would be a low relief carving Mm -hmm. on the surface of a building, of a temple Mm -hmm. like the Parthenon. So I think it's meant to self-consciously be stiff because that's the the grouping or that's the aesthetic from cults from ancient Greece. And all of the figures are on the same plane and that's called isotropic. And so I think his invocation of this isotropic composition is also very self-conscious. So he's not my fave, definitely. But I think that the School of Athens is his most dramatically wonderful, important work. I I
0: I would love to go back there and see how many people were working on that. You know, because Michelangelo was very staunch about, nobody's working with me. Don't come in the room. I'm going to throw a palette knife. I'm going to cut your throat. But Raphael <laughs> was very okay with having everybody do everything. In fact, later in his life, from what I understand, he didn't do much. It was a lot of people doing his stuff for him.
1: All right, so let's talk about Michelangelo.
0: Michelangelo, Michelangelo, um, Michelangelo is arguably the greatest artist of all time, of ever. He's the, he's the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time. And he's the greatest of all time because... He was a phenom. There's prodigies, and then there's like prodigies. Jean-Dominique Ang, prodigy. Edgar Degas, prodigy. Pablo Picasso, prodigy. Michelangelo, smoked all those dudes. He was that level. He was a little kid. If you look at his reliefs when he was eight years old, nine years old, ten years old, you look at his reliefs. It was like a man. It was like a, a great artist at as a little tiny kid. Michelangelo just overall as a drafts person, nobody has ever been as as has been better. You can be as good. If you look at some of the great drawings of Ang or the great drawings of like let's say some of the great Russian masters like Fetchin or Repin. They're all on par with Michelangelo. Okay? But they're not better.
1: You can't be better. It's impossible to be better. I mean, anybody can be better it's at subjective. painting a female nude. Sure, Michelangelo was not good to, to that. women. We're, we're <laughs> get
0: to, listen, Michelangelo wasn't the greatest painter. There's no doubt. But here's the categories he was in. It's like talking about a, a, like a basketball player, right? Like Michael Jordan, greatest scorer of all time, one of the greatest defensive players of all time. Not the greatest rebounder, not the greatest free throw shooter, right? But in like and like four of ten things to be the one person to dominate those four of ten, Michelangelo's nine of ten. Michelangelo was a ten of ten with drawing. He was a ten of ten with sculpture. He's the greatest sculptor of all time, and he's the greatest draftsman of all time. And goddamn, he was a good poet and a good art, a great architect and a great painter. Not the greatest painter, like you said. Not the most understood of female form, but that was because he was a little bit repelled because he really loved male bodies. So Michelangelo was also a phenomenal workaholic. We're talking about a guy who worked on the Sistine Chapel. Arguably the greatest achievement in art history, period. Another category I just crossed off, by the way.
1: I know you're giving him all sorts of well, superlatives. Was like, I was watching the Quincy <laughs> Jones documentary the other day. It's
0: like Quincy Jones didn't, wasn't just the greatest. He produced the greatest album of all time, Thriller, or the most, uh, most selling album of all time. Then he did Vibe Magazine, and then he did We Are the World. I mean, like this guy did everything and everybody Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, Michael Jackson, Frank Sinatra. Uh, come on, like he just crushed it in all the categories. Like as a producer, Michelangelo was like that for art. He crushed every category, and he was
1: obsessed. So he was like a true Renaissance man, which I think deserves right. to be defined because during the Renaissance, people did not identify with just one career choice, with one path. They could be equally science uh, scientists and sculptors and draftsmen and painters mm-hmm. and philosophers and whatever it was. And so it was really a rebirth of this interdisciplinary approach to life. And Re,
0: nay, to be born.
1: Exactly. So rebirth. And I agree that he was the most stunning sculptor. I really think Unreal. that... Unreal. Yeah, Un- unparalleled. Like the
0: Pieta, if you look at the Pieta, you look at David. I think he did David at twenty-seven. You look at David. That alone, you're just like, are you kidding me? And I heard what he, like, the the fact that he had to go to the quarries and grab this marble and create these, I mean, I don't even understand it. It's so good. It is. I and look at any sculptor today. I mean, to me, the only one that was even close, Verrocchio, that, you know, Donatello, by the way, Michelangelo was in love with Donatello. Like, Donatello was the shizit to Michelangelo. But anyway, Rodin is the only person to me that, took what Michelangelo did and, and kind of added a dimension of abstractness to it. But Michelangelo is a sculptor, I mean his work is so beautiful, it's almost like brings you to tears.
1: It's- it does. And he had this quote, which I don't know verbatim, but the sentiment was that in every within every block of marble is something that's already living and it's the yep. job of the sculptor yep. to release it.
0: And and he did when he did his last series on Esclav, All the Slaves and that was becoming this abstract thing, then he was going to where Rodin picked it up and kind of took it from there. It was like he he was going into contemporary sculpture. You know what I mean? So this is a guy who was always investigating. He's 81 years old, and he says, I'm just beginning to learn how to draw. I'm just beginning to learn how to draw. I mean, that's a lesson for everybody. You're talking about the greatest draftsman of all time, the greatest sculptor of all time, saying that. That's very humbling. He wasn't a humble man. He was not a humble person. He wasn't a nice person. He was very curmudgeon He was ugly. He was short. He was built like a brick shithouse, but, you know, stout. <laughs> but not an attractive man. Really not an attractive man. And, you know, he had, he was a weird dude because, you know, I talk about his drawings. And from what I understand, about 70 80% of his entire drawing collection was burned. He burned all of it. He didn't want anyone to see it. I mean, his worst drawing was my best drawing. You know what I mean? That's the crazy <laughs> shit, or maybe not even. And yet he burns it all because he says, "I'm not good enough.
1: Uh, what I'm courage. not good
0: enough." He takes all his money, he puts it under his boards. He doesn't spend it. He's not living lavishly in the world. You know what I mean? He's not a he's not a G like Leonardo. He's not getting all the cute honeys. Boys in Leonardo's case, and boys boys in, boys in Michelangelo's, Michelangelo's case. <laughs> yeah, he was he was gay. Although even his sexuality is questionable, because they say he was so hard working, he was working on the Sistine Chapel until his soles of his shoes stuck to his feet. That's how crazy he was. He worked until he couldn't work anymore, and when he couldn't work anymore, he worked some more. That was the level of of performance. Going back to Shakespeare word. Tying it all in three (laughs) sixty, I'm fucking on fire right now. One cup of coffee, intermittent fasting, and I'm just on fire. I know,
1: and I'm gonna cut you off and talk about the art a little bit. Who
0: Cares about the art. Let's (laughs) talk about the person.
1: Let's talk about the gossip. Who did he bang? But
0: (laughs) nobody. That
1: was the thing. I (laughs) don't. No,
0: I didn't. All right. No, but I really don't think he did. That's my whole point. He was so freaking asexual because he was in love with one person. His work. That's a level.
1: That is. That is dedication to the craft. So you mentioned the David and that is a really beautiful piece. It is huge. We talk about scale sometimes. Huge. And David is this celebrated Florentine figure. And so the story that's being referenced is David and Goliath. Goliath was the gigantic um, I, was he a man or
0: He was like a man monster, yeah, kind of so, like uh, you know, kind of like a a behemoth human being.
1: Sure. And then David was this very young boy, and the fact that he was able to slay Goliath was just, it defied all expectations of performance. And typically when sculptors render this theme, and often they do, they'll show the head of Goliath and the body of David. But what Michelangelo does that is so psychologically rich is that he shows David moments before the violent encounter. And you can see the musculature. It's almost swelling with anticipation. And it is really incredible and frightening to see. And his brow is furrowed. And his eyes look just intense oh, and fiery. It's so intense. And the way that his hand rests on his skin. And you can almost see that contact. And you can see the skin fold based on the pressure of the hand. And it just, it's really... I think the most poetic sculpture I've ever seen, and it's the most psychologically rich.
0: Yeah, and you, you could see that he's, he's also using contrapposto, a distribution of weight, and he's got his pinch side, which is on the right side, the ribcage and the pelvis are pinching as the left side is stretching, and that's where his hand is over his shoulder. And what's another phenomenal thing about the sculpture that I remember uh, is that how disproportionate the hands are, and why did he do the hands so disproportionately? He wasn't doing what I was doing, which is stylizing to, for dramatic, purposes but what was he doing he was doing it to keep things in perspective and proportionate to the viewer because he knew that it would be on a pedestal and so as you look up to it even though the hand is bigger it's proportionate
1: because you're looking at it from below. I know it's genius and as you see it as a viewer now it's been initially it was supposed to be very above eye level and then it was taken because it was so celebrated and so beloved it was placed on a pedestal more at human level but still above it in a square. And now it is the the frontispiece the, of uh, the Academy in Florence. And when you see photographs of the work from head on, the proportions look a little bit wonky. The legs are so... Or the torso is kind of condensed. And it's just... It looks like it's off. And the head is super big. But from the perspective of a viewer, actually within the space, he looks perfect. And I think the ingenuity of being able to transform marble in that way with such attention to perspective is pretty fantastic. And I wanted to scoot into our conversation of Donatello using the David because Donatello's most iconic piece is also of David. And Donatello was not a contemporary of the other no. O's. He um, he worked decades prior And he, I think, was the master of the early Renaissance. That's how he can. And and I think that was the
0: only person that Michelangelo actually liked.
1: Oh, that I didn't know. Which
0: is interesting because Michelangelo was very critical of all other artists, including Leonardo. Hmm. uh, And he really did love uh, Donatello. And yeah, Donatello's uh, David is very, very, very youthful. Yes. Simple. It's very simple and very beautiful and poetic. There's a poetry to all of Donatello's work that I love. There's a simplicity. Michelangelo was clearly way more advanced and sophisticated and 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 hard, you know? Donatello was just soft and poetic and beautiful and, I don't know, it was like... There's a deliciousness to the simplicity of his work, as where Michelangelo's like, whoa, he's in, like, advanced calculus. He's just gone, like, off to the hemisphere of... He's painting for God. You know, he's he's... God is controlling his hand. A human is still doing, you know, a human, Donatello's a human. He's a superhuman, but he's a human. Michelangelo's not.
1: And the David, the, his rendering of David is a lot more human than Michelangelo's. And Donatello's is an adolescent. He's a kid yeah. with a slack, soft body. And Michelangelo's David, every muscle is articulated as separate from every other one. But with Donatello's, he just looks like a youthful boy. Mm -hmm. And so I think that dramatizes the shock that this David would be able to slay Goliath. And so that was unusual. And the fact that David is resting his foot atop the head of Goliath, that's a more traditional approach. But something that is noteworthy about this work, which is bronze, whereas Michelangelo's is marble. Mm -hmm. But this was the first time that since classical antiquity that a nude was rendered in art. Because Mm -hmm. I think with Christianity as being such a pervasive force throughout Europe, there was a conservatism with that. And so the nudity that was just so ubiquitous in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, suddenly the church didn't really approve that. And so figures had to be clothed and figures from antiquity often the genitals were covered with fig leaves or knocked off altogether so when you go to a museum and you see all these fig leaves that kind of look like they're additions it's because they are and sometimes when you see the genitals completely removed it's not necessarily because of the wear of time it's because they were consciously taken away from the experience of the work so this is the first time that we've returned back to this classical heroic nude.
0: Yeah, and they're both very small penis. Uh, Donatello has a very <laughs> tiny, very tiny, abnormally small very penis. Very relevant. And, and maybe because he's young and, and David's got a bigger penis, but not quite uh. as large as you would think David would have, especially if he's fighting. Well, he's
1: nervous. He's nervous, but you, you got to have
0: balls. <laughs> you have to have big, big, big metal balls of steel to fight you know, Goliath.
1: It's true. But if you're underneath the balls, perhaps the perspective is such where they look bigger. Another than they
0: genius do. thing yeah. that he did. Unbelievable. Really important. So Absolutely. let's wrap
1: up talking about Leonardo. <laughs> We've yeah. already discussed the Mona Lisa. So let's talk about... Let's just talk something. about... The... Oh, I know. Let's talk about the Last Supper. But
0: wait, before you just go into Leonardo, let's not let's just not skirt over Leonardo either. Leonardo, a, a sculptor, a painter, a draftsman, an anatomist, a poet a vegan, a, a, botanist. Phila- a botanist, a philanthropist, a humanitarian, uh, a, 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 a playboy, uh, a guy who was not normal in a, in a culture that the average height of a man was 5'4", five 5'5". Five five. He was six feet. Uh, he was incredibly handsome. His body was jacked as opposed to Michelangelo. Michelangelo, you know, <laughs> no, I'm just saying like he was, he looked like a, you know, a, a a play uh, a playgirl playmate you know what i mean he was like a actual super stud he looked like he probably could have been like they talk about him like he was a a versace model but yet he was a you know inventor and a everything he was an everything guy he also was not normal everything he did was excellence he was brilliant one of those times you know where you had a couple of people during that era, right? Who were way beyond their time. They were futurists. They were they were extraordinary individuals, and you don't see people like that anymore. And you can't even equate them with like Elon Musk or Branson or Steve Jobs. Or they were just different. You know what I mean? They were just supernatural human beings that were forward thinking and and mind boggling. And it's amazing to look back at that time. And to see what they created. But of course, this was before Instagram. So (laughs) it makes sense that they had a lot of time on their hands.
1: I guess so. And you mentioned this concept of being forward thinking. And I think that is really best applied to Leonardo because of all of the high Renaissance masters, he was the most experimental with his materials. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. And for once, I'm going to be the one who introduces process into this conversation, but a lot of his canvas work he varnished with this kind of yellowish substance. I don't know what it was, but he wanted his work to be very moody, very emotional, and darken the the palette. And so he would varnish it intentionally to achieve that effect. Now, unfortunately, that varnish will... Degrade and has degraded over time, and so it alters the compositional effect of his work. And so we think of his color palette as being very, very dark, and it's true that it was, but also it's been intensified because of the chemical compounds of this varnish. So that's one thing that's kind of interesting about one of his techniques. And another, we talked about frescoes with regards to Raphael, and Leonardo did a fresco that is just tremendous to view. And I would encourage anyone who's in Italy to see it now because it All is, one of you. <laughs> it's not going to be there forever. So it, it's his last supper. And instead of binding his pigment to some kind of wet poxy, he decided to just put it up dry. And so this was a dry fresco technique. And it's incredibly unstable. And as early as 1507, and the work was completed right around 1500, it started to flake. And there's no way that we're going to be able to save it. And so seeing it in person, it it's almost like a mandala, where eventually it's going to be gone. And so that... Yep. That eventuality of death and decay adds to our appreciation of the work and is, I think, particularly appropriate to this theme of the Last Supper when Christ just announces to the 12 apostles that he knows that one of them betrayed him. And each of the 12 apostles, they've been rendered to exhibit a particular emotion. And it's kind of fun to look at this work, which is also isotropic, and again, that just means that all the figures are grouped in right around the same line. And that's a reference to the Greeks. But it's kind of fun to go through and to say, oh, okay, this guy's confusion. This guy's anger. This guy is whatever. And so I think that he he humanizes something that tons of artists like to render.
0: Well, there you guys have it. This is the Ninja Turtles. As, <laughs> we, as we know it, this was our Ninja Turtle podcast. Please write a review. We do this because we love it. And we really would love you guys to respond by writing a review. Just take five minutes of your life and just write it. We would really appreciate it. We will see your name and we will love you. Peace.